We are in week five of a series entitled Epic, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the New Testament. Um, we're going to jump around between the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John this morning. There's a few different books that we'll be in, so uh, if, you, if you open up to the book of Mark, that'll be good. It's a good starting point. Uh, Mark chapter 14, in fact, is where we're going to start out today. So, Epic. Living an epic life in an ordinary world. One of the things that we battle in the world that we live is this idea that my life is as good as it's going to get. That, that my circumstances and what I'm walking through and what I'm dealing with and, and the way things are going, this is about as good, good as it's going to get. This is about as good as I, as I can expect or anticipate that, w that it'll be, and we resign ourselves to that, and we buy into the idea that, that the things of our past will limit us both in our present and our future, and so we just kind of throw our hands up and kind of give up. The idea that when we watch an epic movie like Braveheart and you see someone whose life, uh, it, it just they did amazing, amazing things, and you go, well, that's amazing, but I'll never be able to accomplish anything like that. We run the risk of comparing ourselves to other people, whether historical figures, real people around us, or even fake people. You know, we, in our world, it's hard to tell what's real and what's fake, and we find ourselves comparing ourselves to things that just aren't real and people who aren't real. And so we resign ourselves to kind of this humdrum existence. But the reality is that God's design for you is that you would live an epic life, that he's called you to thrive, and he's called you to overcome, and he's called you to do amazing things. And as the psalmist, uh, the psalmist wrote, that, that God knit you together. Before you, he knit you together in your mother's womb, he knew you, and he knew the plans. Jeremiah, he says to Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. God has amazing things in store for us, and so when we buy into the idea that this is just as good as it gets, that is actually contrary to what God would declare over your life. And so in talking about epic, uh, my hope is that you would latch onto this idea, this truth, that God has called you to live an amazing and extraordinary life. And so we've looked at some different people. We've talked about uh, Noah and Gideon and, and some others. The King David is one that we discussed. Well, this morning we're, we're moving into the New Testament. And to, today I want to talk about Peter, the Apostle Peter. Living epic when you've made mistakes. Living epic when you've made mistakes. I don't need to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever made a mistake because I know you have, right? Every one of us has made mistakes. And I'm not talking about the kind of mistakes where you like you picked up the wrong brand of butter when you ran to the grocery store, right? Guys, you can relate. You sent to the store for butter and you come back and you're like, no, you got the you got the unsalted and I needed the salted, right? That that that's that's a mistake that's not really that big of a deal. That's not gonna alter okay, I see like elbowing going on. <laughs> the cookies didn't turn out right. Um this is not a life-altering kind of mistake or, or the kind of mistake that says I picked the wrong answer on the multiple-choice math test, right? That's a bummer, but that's not going to change the course of your life uh, unless you're an engineer. No, it's, it's just not. It's just that's a small mistake. I'm talking about life 
life-altering mistakes. Things that happen, decisions that we make that, that can really affect the course of our lives and, and the way that we live our lives and the things that we do. Mistakes that, that happen maybe in the workplace. Maybe mistakes that, that take, take place in your education. Mistakes in, in relationships. Dating, dating the wrong person. Anyone ever date the wrong person? Right? And you're like, ooh, that was a mistake. That was not a good idea. Actions and decisions ultimately that lead us down a bad, pay, a bad path. And by the way, here's the a, here's a thing, a good barometer as to whether or not something is a, a mistake or not. Ask yourself before you act, will I have to lie about this later? Will this force me to lie about my actions? If the answer is yes, then whatever it is, is a mistake. Sound good? Would you guys agree with that? We never think about that ahead of time, do we? When I was a kid, um, I, I kind of grew up in a, in a cool environment. My dad owned a trucking business. And, uh, and so as a kid, my, kid, my friends played with Tonka toys. I played with the real thing. Um, I was driving 18-wheelers by the time I was 10 years old, not on the road. We, we had like a farm, and I would cruise around, and I was driving big caterpillars and machines when you know, I was 12 and 13 years old, and it was awesome. My friends all wanted to hang out with me on Saturdays because we would go to work with my dad, and we would just do crazy things. And I remember this one time. I was probably about 12 years old. Uh, my dad had purchased about 20 brand-new uh, semi-trucks, so the tractor portion of, uh, of the truck. And uh, it was, uh, this was in South Africa, and the most popular brand of truck in South Africa was actually Mercedes-Benz. And, uh, and so these things were amazing. And he needed it moved. They were, they were all parked together in one part of the property, and he needed them moved to another part of the property. And, and I was more than happy to help out. And, uh, and so I spent my whole day moving these trucks, and I, I got them parked all perfectly lined up, and it just looked amazing. And the last truck that I moved, as I was backing up, I misjudged my distance, and I backed one of the trucks into another one of the trucks. Two brand-new trucks just crunched the fender. And it wasn't a ton of damage, but, oh, I was, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. And so... What, here's what I did. I went right to my dad and I confessed. No, I didn't. I didn't. I, I'm, I knew I was going to be in trouble and I knew he was going to be ticked. So here's what I did. I, I parked the truck. I got everything lined up perfectly, took the keys, turned them into the office, and then I hid out for the, next, the rest of the day, hoping that no one would notice. The problem is this. I knew that someone would notice because you could not notice it. And here's that what I thought. I'll just blame someone else. I'll blame someone else. You know, I was 12 years old. That was a long time ago. I won't tell you how long. It was a long time ago. But it starts young. It starts young when we make mistakes and we don't know what to do after we've made a mistake. And so we lie and we hide or we just ignore it. We hope that that feeling of guilt goes away. And you know, my dad did find out, and he knew that it was me. He knew it wasn't one of his more experienced drivers, like basically anyone else. Um, he knew it was me, and yeah, he was upset. But I've got to tell you, the feeling of relief, first when he didn't kill me, um, 
No, when, when, when I got to come clean and say, yeah, it was me, and he's like, all right, just tell me. I can get it fixed, no big deal, just, just tell me. He's like, I trusted you to do it, and accidents happen. And there's just this huge feeling of relief. You know, I think what happens so often is we make mistakes, and then we go through the rest of our life hoping that that mistake will just disappear, that it'll just somehow go away, that my memory of it will, will, will just fade, or, or that person hoping that that person... Or those people never find out. Or I'm painted into a corner where I just have to habitually lie about it to cover my tracks. Can I tell you, that's not epic living. That's not epic living. It sucks and, and robs the life out of us. See, because accidents sometimes just happen. They happen in the moment. And then sometimes accidents, or mistakes rather, are premeditated. We think about it, we plan it, and we execute, and even though we know we're not supposed to. You know, the, the accidental ones in the, in the moment is when I choose to say something unkind or sarcastic to my wife. And as the words are coming out of my mouth, I know this is a mistake. Anyone been there? Any guys in the house? You're like, yep. You know it's a mistake, and it's just happening in the moment. Maybe you're upset, or you're angry, or hurt, but, and the words are coming out, and you're like, go back in. And you know that it's a mistake, and it just happens. And no, I'm not going to give you an example from my own marriage, because that would be a mistake. Um, we've all been there. But then there's those things, those mistakes that we make where we ponder it. We think about it. Check it out. We look at the angles and we evaluate. Can I get away with this? Can I make it work? How can I turn things into my favor? And then we go for it knowing that we're not doing the right thing, especially in light of what God would call us to. See, it's hard to live epic or feel epic when you know you've messed up. Am I right? It's hard to live epic it's, or, or even feel epic when you've messed up. We start thinking about, like this, what I said before, God can't use me because, because there's something hidden in my life. There's something in the closet. There's something that at any point could, could jump out and expose me because there's this mistake in my past. We say this, the best I can hope for is, the best I can hope for is this. See, I love Peter. I love Peter. He's my third favorite person in Scripture. He's not my first. He's my third. My first, first favorite person in Scripture is, can you guess? Jesus, right? Because he has to be. No, Jesus, Jesus is absolute my favorite because he saved me. He's my Savior, and he has to be my favorite. Barnabas is my second because he inspires me. I read about the life of Barnabas, and I'm like, I want to be like that guy. I, just something about Barnabas that just inspires me. But I, I, Peter's my third favorite for this reason, because I can relate to him. I can relate to him. I see myself in Peter, right? I, I, my ideal is to be like Christ. I want to act more like Barnabas, but I really see myself in Peter. I want to take a look at Mark, Mark chapter 14, verse 27 through 31. This is an encounter that Jesus has with Peter. Let me read it, and I'll give the context. Starting verse 27 says this, You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
that after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, twice you yourself will, will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. This all happens in the upper room. It happens as they're really riding a wave of excitement. See, Jesus knows where he's headed. He knows he's headed to the cross. And in fact, he's, he's told the disciples as much, but they're a little clueless. And they're just enjoying the moment. See, the triumphal entry. They come into Jerusalem, and, and, and as Christy was mentioning, the, the people are lining the streets, and they're waving their hands in the palm branches, and they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Jesus is there, and, and, the, and the disciples are with him. And I've I got to imagine they're thinking, this is pretty cool. This is pretty amazing, because, yeah, we're with him. We're, we're part of his entourage, Right? Yeah, you're praising him, but we're with him. We're close to him. We're walking with him. And, and so they're, they're just pumped up. They're excited. Immediately following this, Jesus enters into a really powerful time of teaching. The, the moment from the triumphal entry till the upper room, some of the, the deepest and most profound teaching in the New Testament of Jesus' teaching is found in that window. Jesus, it's like he knows that it's crunch time. He knows that, 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 that everything's about to change. And so he kind of pulls out the big guns. And, and if you read in the New Testament, if you read any of the Gospels from the triumphal entry to the crucifixion, that period of teaching is so powerful. It's this, it's this moment where Jesus actually goes into the temple and he clears the temple. And he, and he flips over the tables and, and the disciples are going, whoa. Well, this is a sight of Jesus we haven't seen a lot of. And as a guy like you, a guy like Peter, especially because he's a little impassioned and emotional, whoa, wow, this is incredible. And so there's this this high that they're experienced, and now they're sitting together in the upper room after sharing a meal. We know it now as the Last Supper. They just called it dinner, right? They were celebrating the Passover together, and it was in this moment. After sharing all of these things, having walked with Jesus for three years, and Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And, and Peter goes, no, no, no. In fact, he says to all the disciples, you guys are going to fall away. I love you, but you're going to make a big mistake. And Peter, the loudmouth, the vocal one, the emotional one, the passionate one goes, listen, I don't care what everyone else does, but not me. I'm in it to win it. I am with you to the end. I am not going to fail you. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never, ever, ever deny you. I will never disown you. Well, we know the story goes on, and exactly that happens. Let's read in Luke chapter 22, 54 through 62. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest, that is Jesus. Peter followed at a distance. When some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and, 
had sat down together, Peter, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him. He is a Galilean. They would have known that because of his accent. He spoke differently to the rest of them. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I can't imagine a bigger mistake. See, it's one thing to make a mistake. It's another thing to go, I'll never make that mistake and then make that mistake. I'll never make that mistake. And then the next thing you know, and the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that comes going, I made a declaration that I would never do that, and then I did it. Here's Peter. I, Lord, I will go with you to death. I will follow you to the cross. I will die with you, but I will never disown you. And even as they're leading Jesus into the priest's home, he follows at a distance. See, when they came into Jerusalem, I'm sure Peter was right there next to the donkey, right next to the colt, as close as he could be with Jesus. I want to be associated. And now already his heart and his body is distancing himself from Jesus, even before the words come out of his mouth. The thing that strikes me the most in this says that after the rooster crowed that Jesus looked right at Peter. They locked eyes. I can't imagine what that must have felt like. I can't imagine how Peter must have felt in that moment to look into the eyes of his Savior, his Lord, his friend. After having said, I'll never do this, and immediately after doing it, seeing Jesus and seeing his eyes. And I wonder sometimes, what did Jesus look at him like? What was that gaze like? You know, you can read a lot into a look, can't you? There's the look you give your kids. We developed a look for our kids when we would be at church, and we would see them across when they were little, right? You know what I'm talking about? And there was, I could be in a conversation, and I would just give the look, and, <laughs> and they would know, right? Megan has a look for, for the kids, for, not for me, but for the kids. Um, you develop a look. So we know that nonverbal communication, what, what, what was on Jesus' face in that moment? I think Scripture gives us some clues, and I want to talk about that in, in just a moment. Here, I have three points this morning that I want to draw from this passage for us. See, because if this was the end of the story, it'd be a real bummer. It'd be really sad if it just stopped there and we never hear about Peter again. But so thank, thankfully... That this isn't the end for him. There's so much more to come. Three points you can write these down if you're taking notes. The first thing is this. How do you live epic when you've made mistakes? First thing is this. Be ready 
to repent. Be ready to repent. See, there's no getting around this. There's no way to water this down. There's no way to, to, to kind of circumnavigate this as, as a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, if, it, it, whether you walk with him or you want to walk with him, either way, there's no way getting around repentance. There's no substitute. There's no alternative. That the, the, the first and, and only response that needs to come when we've made mistakes is for us to repent. That moment when I, my dad confronted me and he said, hey, did you do this? And I was able to go, yes, it was me. And as much as I knew there might be punishment and, and pain on the other side of that, my heart and the relief and the, and the anguish that was relieved in my heart when I got to repent and say, yes, that was me. Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what I did. See, we don't like to say those words. We don't like to say these things. I was wrong. It's not a favorite statement for really anyone. No one goes around and goes, I love just admitting how I was wrong. None of us. We're just not wired that way. See, because we're sinful people and pride is a part of that. And so we, I don't want to admit that I was wrong. I'll admit that you were wrong, right, all day long. But I don't want to admit that I was wrong. We have a hard time saying I'm sorry and really meaning it. Not I'm sorry I got caught because that's something completely different. That's another mistake. But genuine sorrow, I am sorry for what I've done. We don't like saying these words, I repent of my sin. I repent. And I think in the church and in the world, and I think the world's idea of what church is, it's kind of that, that repentance has become that word like Christians used to beat people up, right? Repent! Repent for the kingdom is near. A true statement setting in an unloving way, and we're like, oh, don't talk to me about repentance. But we can't get around repentance because repentance is for us. God designed it for us. We have a hard time saying, please Forgive me. Please forgive me. I was wrong. Please forgive me. See, just because we don't like saying those things doesn't mean that they're not critical for living an epic life in Christ. We cannot live epic for Jesus if we don't repent. And here's what I know. The closer I draw to Jesus, the more I need to repent. Because there's more that I see in my life. And it's not about repenting just for the big stuff. I'll repent for the big sin, but everything else, you know, I'll just kind of handle it on my own. That's not the way that it works. God says that we need to come to him in our brokenness and repentance. And that it's in that moment that he meets us and he lifts us up. So, so we need to be ready to repent. For Peter, this happened in the weeping. See, Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter looks at Jesus, and that gaze face to face, when he looks upon the righteousness and the glory and the perfection of who Jesus is in this moment, in the moment where Jesus is being accused wrongly, when he's being led ultimately to his death, Jesus and Peter lock eyes. And Peter's response, he runs out of that courtyard, and it says that he weeps bitterly. 
I believe that that weeping, that, that sorrow that his, he felt was his repentance. He was a broken man. He was a broken man in that moment. He'd been called out on his stuff. And I believe the gaze of Jesus was not an accusing one. Right? It wasn't a, told you, told you, I knew. There's no pride. There's no malice. I believe the look on Jesus' face was absolutely loving, one of compassion. How do I know that? It says in the Bible that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. I believe the look on Jesus' face was one of absolute compassion and kindness. And in that moment, Peter, in his sin and in his brokenness, runs out of that place and weeps in sorrow. Tears shed crying out to God, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. See, the loving gaze of Jesus, yes, there's conviction. There's always conviction that the Holy Spirit will convict us of our sin. Why? Because he's faithful to not let us stay in our sin. I believe the loving gaze of Jesus and the cross of Jesus Christ invites us to repentance. It invites us it doesn't reject us. There's always the invitation. We see this with Jesus when he hangs on the cross and he, and he utters those words, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's not a heart of rejection. That's a heart of, of wanting to receive and invite people and draw them near. Peter's tears were full of sorrow, true sorrow and repentance. I'm going to ask you this this morning. When's the last time you shed tears over your sin? When's the last time you shed tears over your sin? When's the last time you gazed on the face of Jesus and in that moment were broken because of your sin? Every one of us should daily gaze upon the face of Jesus Christ. And as we do, our sin is exposed, but he doesn't expose us. He invites us to come to a place of repentance. When was the last time you shed tears over your sin? Or has it become too familiar and comfortable for you? Have you reached a place where your sin doesn't affect you anymore? My prayer is that, it's, that you're not, and if you have, that your heart has been stirred. Or has your pride convinced you that you're okay? But in your heart, you know you're not. Do you want to live epic in an ordinary world? Be ready to repent. Be ready to come before the cross, before your Lord and Savior, and admit your sin and ask for forgiveness. By the way, one of the most powerful things you can do to break the power of of sin in your life and release the, the stronghold that those mistakes would have on you is to do this. Find someone you trust who know, loves the Lord and confess your sin. Confess your sin. And, and there's just something that breaks when you do that. It's something powerful that happens when you do that. I say be cautious, be careful. Don't just go to the next person you see, right? Right? Because there are a lot of people 
I hear this a lot. People go, well, I've been hurt in church. And, and I guess most of the time, that's because I went to someone and I confided in someone who wasn't a safe person to confess to. So make sure the person you're confessing to is a solid Christ-following person who will speak truth and love you well. And then start confessing regularly. We call it accountability. Get some accountability in your life. Second point is this. So be ready to repent. Point number two, receive your restoration. Receive your restoration. Peter and Jesus have an encounter after the resurrection. And this is right before Jesus ascends back into heaven. John chapter 21, verse 15 through 19 says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and, when you, and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Can you guess why he asked him three times? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And each time Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus gives him an assignment. Take care of my lambs, feed my sheep, tend to the flock. He starts building him back up. This moment is, is known as the restoration of Peter. This conversation, this healing moment where Peter and Jesus would sit together again Sharing a meal. There's something powerful about breaking bread, by the way. Peter and, and Jesus in this moment. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Now, there's a lot going on behind the scenes here. There's a lot that's happening that we don't see just in, as we read the words on the page. See, because what Jesus is really saying is, Peter, I know that you denied me. Remember, I saw you in the courtyard. We locked eyes. I'm aware of your mistakes, and I'm aware of your failures, and I'm aware of your shortcomings. But Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Lord, I know that I've made mistakes. Lord, that I, I know I've put my foot in my mouth more times than I can count. Lord, I know I've, I've been oh, just an idiot sometimes. Yes, Lord, I love you. See, Peter's the one who got out of the boat. He's the one who stepped out and walked on water. None of the other disciples, and I imagine for the other disciples, be like, oh, Peter, why did you just say that? 
right? You ever, anyone else, like you watch a sitcom and you're embarrassed for the person or, that's why I can't watch like American Idol or The Voice because I feel the embarrassment for that person even if they don't feel it for themselves. Oh, it kills me. I can't do it. Oh, watch The Voice. Oh, no. No. Go home. Um, <laughs> Peter was that guy. Where the other disciples were like, oh, Peter, no, you know better. That didn't work the last time you did it. But his brashness and his boldness allowed him to walk on water. And I don't know, I imagine if I were Peter, I'd been like, every time they would give me a hard time, go, I'm sorry, Andrew, how was it when you walked on water? Oh, no, that's right, you didn't, right? Mistake. But... (laughs) Peter, I know your mistakes, but do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. See, the enemy wants you to stay stuck in your mistakes. He wants to keep reminding you of your mistakes. He wants you to have a hard time forgetting your mistakes, to not be able to move beyond them. But the thing we have to remember is this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, and he's asking you. I know you've made mistakes. I know there are things in your past that that you haven't even confessed to me yet. I know they're there, but let me ask you today, Jesus would say, do you love me? Because he loves you. He loves you, and he wants you to help move beyond that. In in Luke 15, we see the parable of the prodigal son, you know, who, who takes the father's money, goes off, lives a lavish lifestyle, blows the money, and, and then realizes that he, he can't even afford to buy food to put in his stomach. And he says, listen, if I can just go back to my dad, and I'll just go work as one of his servants. See, because in that culture, the son, the older brother, in fact, had the right in that culture to go seek out the younger brother and take his life because it was an honor culture. And the, the younger son had brought dishonor to the family. And so the, the, the older brother's right should have been to go and find the younger son to take his life and thereby restore honor to the, to the father's name. But that's not what happens. The son comes back knowing that he, it could cost him his life. That's how low he was. We read that story and we're like, oh, that's so nice he came home. He was risking his life coming home. And it says in Luke 15 that that when the father saw him from a distance, he ran. And what did he do? He embraced him. See, that's the heart of God towards us. That's the heart of God towards us. Here's what didn't happen. There was no inquisition. Where have you been? What have you been doing? How did you spend my money? And on and on. There was no accusation. You know, you made a huge mistake. You should have known better than to do what you did. You're such a foolish kid. Can I just interject here real quick? One of the things our culture loves to do is identify different generations and say, oh, you know, teenagers. People would hear that we, this year... Grace turns 13 this year. We'll have four teenagers in our house at least for about four months. And people go, oh, you're dealing with teenagers. I don't receive that. I'm having more fun with our teenagers, right? If you're a young person, 
You hear this all the time, oh, millennials, you know millennials. I love millennials. You guys are amazing. There's no generation that's ever existed that hasn't had stuff that we had to deal with. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. I just did everything I was told to do and never asked any questions. That's not any better. We love to accuse, oh, you know those people and those people. That in Jesus Christ and in God's heart, there's no accusation because we like to kind of drill that home a little bit. That's not present here. There's no guilt. Do you know how much you've hurt me? Is nothing, the, the, those words did not come out of the Father's mouth. Here's what did happen. A loving embrace, a kiss, a robe, which, by the way, restored him. It, was, it signified his position being restored in the household. A ring, which signified his authority as the son of, uh, of the master. And a, a feast and a celebration. That's what did happen. Can I tell you today, the Father is looking for you. And it doesn't matter what mistakes you've made or how far you think you've gone, that the Father is looking for you. And he's saying, if you would just turn and repent and face me, that you don't even have to go any further than that. I will run to you and I will embrace you right where you are. But we have to receive it. We have to receive it. In fact, the son goes, Father, Father, no, 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 no. I, I'm not worthy. And the father says, I will determine whether or not you're worthy, not you. And he kissed him and he hugged him and he put a robe on, on him and a ring on his finger. The father is looking for you. And then finally this morning, live empowered. Live empowered. Jesus commissioned and empowered Peter. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. See, because Peter had work to do. The last three years with Jesus were not just so they could hang out. Jesus was getting Peter ready for the work that he had for him to do. In Acts chapter 2, 38 through 41, we hear this. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Listen, this is Peter speaking. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far, far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. That's important to remember, by the way. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Church, that is serious church growth. Peter doesn't sound like the same person. He's bold, but now in a good way. And there's a whole lot more to his, his sermon. And he preaches boldly in 3,000 people. He's articulate and compelling. And there's no evidence of him holding back because he's going, well, you know, I denied Jesus. So, you know, someone else, you get up and preach because I'm still kind of hurting over that. Hey, there's 3,000 people right here who need to hear the gospel. And Peter's like, let's go. I'm ready to do this. Why? Because he was living empowered, not stuck in the past. Live empowered. By the way, it doesn't mean that he never made any more mistakes. I said it's important to know that he said that this is for you and for your children and for all who call on the name of the Lord. But 15 years later in Acts chapter 10... Peter has the dream about the sheet coming down. 
and all the animals. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. Go to the house of Cornelius. And Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius is a Gentile, and, and, uh, and he shows up there. Remember, 15 years after uh, Acts chapter 2. Peter walks in and he says, because Peter's got an issue with the Gentiles. And at this point, he had not received Gentiles as being worthy of the gospel. And he literally walks into Cornelius' house and he says, now listen, you know that my law says that I shouldn't associate with unclean things. So I'm kind of here. And basically, he calls them and says, listen, you're all unclean and I'm not even sure why I'm here. Peter was not without mistakes. In fact, later on in Galatians chapter 2, Paul has to call Peter out. He actually says, I confronted him to his face because he had issues with Gentiles. And he says this about Peter. You're living like a Gentile, but then you have a problem with Gentiles because they're not coming under the law. Peter, you got a problem. So don't think like all of a sudden, I'm just never going to make another mistake. Peter made lots more mistakes, but he was ready to repent. He was ready to be restored. He received the restoration, and he lived empowered. And it's the same for you. God wants to pour out his power in your life so that you would do things. I know some of you sitting right here, many of you, would say, I can't even imagine preaching to 3,000 people, probably more than 3,000, because 3,000 gave their lives to Jesus. Oh, that, can't, that could never be me. Well, Peter thought the same thing. Peter thought, thought the same thing. You know, sitting on the seat close to you will be one of these. We have some of these invitation cards for Easter next week. I think one of the biggest obstacles to people inviting friends to church, first of all, is because you've made mistakes and you don't want people to think like you're a hypocrite. Maybe in your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood. Well, I can't invite them to church because then, you know, then, then they'll know. Then they'll know. Well, deal with that stuff. Don't let that get in the way of people coming to know Jesus. Receive your restoration. And can I just encourage you, live empowered this week. Who knows? Grab these cards, take them with you, and invite a friend to church next week. Pray about it. Ask the Lord, Lord, who is it that I need to invite? Who can I ask to come to church with me to hear the gospel? My prayer, my dream, is that everyone who hears the name of the Lord as we walk around town as a church, as we go to our workplaces, by the way, because church isn't a place, it's a people, that everywhere we go and declare the name of the Lord, that people will give their lives to Jesus. One day, 3,000 people, because Peter wasn't stuck in the past. God has plans for your life. He's called you to live an epic life. But would you be ready to do the same as Peter did? Be ready to repent. Receive your restoration and live empowered. Can we stand together as the worship team comes? I want to ask this morning...
if you are here and you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never looked into his face and seen that loving gaze, you've never asked him to become the Lord of your life, I don't want to move beyond this moment without giving you that opportunity. So I'm going to ask, uh, let's bow our heads and close our eyes just for privacy for you. Between you and the Lord, if you've not said yes to him and you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, I'm going to ask that you simply raise your hand. I'm, I'm looking so I can agree with you. Is there anyone today who would say yes to the Lord? All right. Father, this morning, we're thankful for the restoring power of the cross. That in the midst of even mistakes, Lord, that, that, that there are no mistakes that can keep us so far away from you that we can't return. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convict us, that you would draw us closer to yourself, that there would be repentance, true repentance. And, Lord, that we would live empowered as your people. Thank you, Lord, that we can look at the life of Peter and and realize that we're not too far off ourselves. So Lord, this week, today, God, I pray that you would convict us of that sin. Those places where we've turned a blind eye, Lord, would you help us to see and then respond to you accordingly. In Jesus' name. Our prayer team is available to pray with you. If there's anything you need prayer for this morning, um, our prayer team is available at the back. They'd love to pray with you. So let's close together this morning in worship.